Well, we're going to uh, be in 1 Corinthians. This is, here's an announcement, the 19th sermon in this series through 1 Corinthians. And uh, Pastor Steve last week said, you know, we'll decide, we're going to go through chapter 13 and we'll decide where we're going to go from there. I'm thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We've made it this far. We should just keep going just to say we did it, you know. So we are in chapter 10 this week. And uh, we're going to start in verse 15 and look through verse 22. There's an outline in your worship folder this morning. So you can follow along. And uh, the scriptures are there also on the screens. About 200 years ago, Charles Wesley wrote these words in a hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, should die for me. In the third verse he wrote, He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. The message of the gospel, the message of why Christ came and died, that identification with the Savior's blood, that identification with a Savior who left the Father's throne and came to be human for us. This morning we're going to discuss the blood, the bread, and the body. There are a couple important things I want us to remember from last weekend. First, two important warnings that Pastor Steve gave us last weekend. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The idea is about the time that you think you've got this Christian life figured out, that you've got it handled and that you are doing well, watch out, baby, here it comes. You've got to watch, be watchful, because there are things around, there are things in our world that will get us off track very easily. Second warning, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He said this to Christians, flee from idolatry, watch out. It's easy to get sucked in, and before you know it, you're caught up in something else. You're being pulled away from your relationship with Christ. Flee, run the other direction. And then a really important definition that Pastor Steve gave us last weekend of idolatry. What is an idol? We defined it this way, a functional substitute savior that we've chosen to rescue us from our own little hell that we've defined for ourselves. You know, that hell that we create, we decide that we are in because we're poor or we decided we're ugly or we're too fat or we're lonely or we're unloved or we're bored or we're overlooked or we're insignificant or we're underappreciated or we have too much stress in our life or there's, there, our, our kids are driving us nuts or my marriage is falling apart. Or I can't take, you know, I just don't really want any responsibility, whatever it might be. And so we decide we can't live there and we set out to find a savior to rescue us. And rather than to go to Jesus, we find others. We find substitutes, a spouse, a relationship, a friend, a job, food, a hobby, our house, vacations, Drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever we put in the place of Christ. And we put our hope in these things. 
And we expect them to save us from this hell that we are in. And so we devote ourselves wholly to obtaining that Savior, to worshiping it, to devoting ourselves to it, to investing in it. We can't imagine our life without it. How would I get through the day without this thing? How would I deal with this issue without this? Sometimes they can even be good things. But it's a created thing that God gave us for our enjoyment. And yet we've used it as a substitute savior. So with those reminders, we now move on to verse 15. And Paul is now going to build on these warnings against idolatry. And primarily he's going to do so by considering the depth of the meaning of the Lord's table or what's commonly known as communion. So we begin in verse 15 where Paul gives a call to the spiritually sensitive believer. Listen to verse 15. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Pretty straightforward. He's saying, now you listen to this argument and see if it holds water, if it's not conclusive to you. You're intelligent. Now figure this out as I, as I go on. Paul is going to continue to argue that a believer should avoid idolatry. And here he argues that it should be avoided because of the meaning of communion, the meaning of the Lord's table. Now, this is a very interesting argument, and so you have to kind of put on your thinking cap a little bit and see where Paul is going. Let's look at verse 16 through 18. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And so he begins this argument, and he's going to look to the table, the Lord's table. And first he begins with the blood. This cup of blessing that we bless, he says. Is it not participation with the blood of Christ? Now, it's a very interesting argument he's making, and he's making it based upon what the people of Corinth in the church there would have known to be the traditions of the Lord's table. You see, experts tell us that there were four cups involved in this meal. Now, let's keep in mind it was a meal, okay? Today, we, you have to realize Jesus didn't gather his disciples together and he gave them all a little cup and a piece of what I call chiclet bread, Okay? It's not what he gathered them to do. He gathered them for the traditional Passover meal that was put together to celebrate the coming of the nation of Israel out of slavery. So it all had its traditions. And if you talk to a Jewish person today, many of these traditions are still around. They're still used in the Passover Seder. And so there were four cups in the midst of this meal. Now, we're used to these. If you go to a really nice restaurant, they put all these glasses on your table, right? I don't know what they're for. They're just there. Don't even get me started on the forks, okay? I don't know. I know you work from the outside in or something like that, left to right or whatever, okay? Same thing. So it wasn't unusual. We're used to this, you know, with these multiple cups, but they each had a meaning. And it was meant to progress the story as the leader of the Seder would progress the people taking part in that meal through the story 
of Israel. The first was the cup of deliverance, where God said to the nation of Israel, I'll bring you out, I'll deliver you. The second cup was the cup of freedom. I'll rid you of your bondage. You'll no longer be in bondage to slavery. The third cup is the cup of redemption, or also known as the cup of blessing, where God said, I will redeem you. I will bring you back as a nation, out of slavery in another land and back into the land that I've promised. The cup of redemption, the cup of blessing. And the fourth cup is called the cup of consummation. God said to the people of Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God. The consummation of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus, in the midst of this meal, stops the proceedings. It's probably time for the third cup. But rather than remind them that this cup stood and represented the restoring of the nation of Israel, Jesus took it that night and used it as a a reminder that from this point on, the disciples, individuals who would come and step into relationship with Christ, would be restored into right relationship with God. It was the cup of redemption, the cup of blessing. This is the blessing that God has given to you through me, Jesus said. This cup now has new meaning. It is still about a right relationship with God, but now that relationship is not through the sacrifices, not through the traditions, but through me. Jesus takes this third cup and he blesses it as the cup of redemption. Well, the passage says that when you drink the cup... When you drink the cup, you are communing with or participating with the blood of Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to commune? Well, consider this carefully. Because, you know, what we tend to do as as good Protestants is that, and especially in a a non-denominational church, what tends to happen is we kind of start taking tradition for granted And we forget the depth of the meaning of these things. And so what has happened over the years is we kind of come to the table and we go, okay, yeah, there's this cup and there's this bread. And then sometimes we come and we dip the bread like this. And sometimes we do it, okay? But we get caught up in the method rather than the depth of the meaning and what we are really doing. And it becomes kind of a, just becomes this ritual that, well, that's that thing you do, I guess. There was the Lord's Supper and so we do this and this is how we remember that. There's so much more here. You see, Paul says this is participation in the blood of Christ. The Greek word here is the word koinonia, meaning not just participation, but deep communion and sharing of something. It's an actual involvement in what's taking place when we take the cup. There is spiritual reality going on here, far more than just a symbol It should have a depth of meaning to us that is far beyond what I believe some of us allow. Let me give you an example of what this really should do in our hearts. If you have a picture, if you're like me, you have pictures in your house of people in your family who have passed on. But it's not just a picture, is it? 
As soon as you look at that picture, the whole person, the whole life of that person is re-actualized in your mind, right? All of a sudden, everything that that person was is alive to you again. You know, we look at pictures of people who have gone on and we have instant memories. Our mind is flooded with those memories and that person becomes very close again. Communion is the same thing. You see, to participate and to partake of the elements actualizes Christ's death. It should make it vivid. It should make it real and intensify our sensitivities to the reality of Christ dying for us. See, he isn't just a little cup and a piece of bread. It shouldn't just be, yeah, this is about Jesus died. You see, this was the turning point in history. The turning point of each of our lives. Because Christ took that cup of redemption. And he blessed it and said, now you can step into right relationship with God through me. Through the sacrifice that I will make. Well, what about this thought that we are communing or participating, it says, in the blood of Christ? Well, that's kind of odd. And what's Paul trying to say? Well, there's an English term that I think will help us here. And we'll learn it kind of in English and see what has happened in the translation. We all know if we listened in English class, and I won't ask any of us who actually listened in English class. Just speak, we'll know whether you listen in English class, okay? We know what a synonym is. Okay. We, what's a synonym? Okay. We know what an antonym is, and we know what a homonym is, right? And if you're from the South, you know what a mononym is. How's your mononym? Anyway. All right, there's, a, there's another one that I don't remember learning. If you're an English teacher, just forgive me. I don't remember getting this one. It's called a metonym. And a metonym is a, wor- a word that is used in place of another because it has actual relationship. Let me give you an example. If you tell me I was reading Shakespeare, well, you weren't actually reading Shakespeare. Not the guy, right? I, and I don't think he wrote any of his plays on himself. And if he did, I don't want to read it today, okay? We say this, it's, it's literally an impossibility that you could read Shakespeare. What are you meaning to say? Well, you mean to say, I was reading his writings, right? That is a metonym, okay? I was reading Shakespeare, I was reading his writings. A metonym is a different word that's used in its place substituting for another word an actual relationship, okay? We all get what we're meaning when we say that. Well, here, the term the blood of Christ is a metonym that is substituted for another term, death. The blood of Christ is a metonym for the death of Christ. It is used because Hebrews tended to use this form of speech to speak of violent death. Whenever you talk about the blood of somebody being poured out to the Hebrew, that meant violent death. And when you commune with the blood of Christ, it doesn't literally mean the blood of Christ. It's a metonym for his death. We are participating in, we are communing with his death. So the pouring out of blood was showing the significance of death. So it's Paul in his writings would say you're participating in the blood of Christ. Let's read it with the metonym gone. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the death 
of Christ in his death. It means we enter into a genuine, vital participation in his death. And we'll look at this more in just a moment, and it'll all start to make sense. And so Jesus takes this cup, and he says, this is a cup of redemption. This is a cup of blessing. This is a cup of new relationship with God through my death. Then he takes the bread in verse 16. At the end of that verse, the bread that we break, is it not participation or communion in the body of Christ? Jesus said of the bread that last night, this is my body given for you. Now the word body in Hebrew thought refers to the totality of earth, earthly life, of humanness. We are humans and that is significance, has significance because of the body. We we relate things to what the body is up to, okay? We define life by what state the body is in. When a Hebrew thought of the body, he thought of earthiness. He thought of man's connection to the ground through Adam and to his own humanness. So by taking of the bread, we remember and commune with our Lord's incarnation, his human life, his humanness. In taking the bread, we relate to the living Christ who came and who suffered and who was tempted. How was he tempted? Like we are. The bread reminds us of his life. The bread reminds us of his body, reminds us of his humanness, that God gave himself to us as a human being in order that he might suffer what we suffer, in order that he might hurt where we hurt, in order that he might be tempted where we're tempted so that we can remember his humanness, his humanness taken on for us. You see, we're told that Jesus gave up the privileges of his godness and took on humanness for us. The bread is that reminder of this human part of who Jesus was that suffered and hurt and was tempted just like we are. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, that identification with his death. You see, resurrection is the evidence that death didn't overcome him. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, but the verse continues. And the fellowship of his what? His suffering. That's related to his life, to his humanness. Paul says, I want to be able to suffer like Jesus. I want to be able to have the humility of Jesus relived in me. I want to bear the marks of Jesus in this body. I want to commune with his humanness. I want to commune with his suffering. I want to be persecuted for righteousness sake just as he was. So Jesus breaks this bread and says, this is my body. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the humanness of Christ, in the celebration and acknowledgement that Jesus gave up all that he had in heaven to come and be one of us? 
Well, there's another meaning to this bread too. And it's in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We are all one body. This bread does represent his humiliation, his humanness, his human suffering as a man for us. Something we can all relate to. But Paul also reminds the Corinthians and reminds us today that there's another meaning here, that everyone who comes to the Lord's table not only enters into communion and participation with Christ, into vital relationship with Him, but enters into communion with everyone else who is at the table. That we all partake of this one bread. We all constitute one body. Communion then means that we are actually communing with Christ and actually communing with everybody else who is there. You see, in this meal, as in every worship time, the worship, the worshipers, and the one being worshipped are all one. This is why in Scripture, the church, the followers of Christ are called the what? The body of Christ. We are all one body. This is why Paul throughout 1 Corinthians keeps going back to you must be in right relationship with one another. That's why we talked about shouldn't be suing one another. Here's how you deal with your issues with one another. Here's how you deal with tension in the church. As we continue in this book, we'll discover all sorts of other areas the Corinthians were struggling in because they didn't view themselves as one body. The body of Christ. In deep relationship with one another. See, one of the reasons we do small groups around here is to promote this. Very hard to have deep relationships. Look around you with all these people, right? But you can do that with 10 or 12. We're in relationship with one another. And when we come to the table... We need to see Jesus breaking that bread and saying, you are one body. I stepped in to humanity to save you and suffered and hurt and was tempted as you were. And I'm giving myself for you. But remember that you have to be in deep relationship with one another. Because as I leave, you are my body on earth. See, Jesus remains in this place because we gathered together. And we bring his spirit into this place. Let me pause and do a parenthetical statement here. Let me say a word about a theological clarification I think is important. Specifically about the Catholic doctrine called transubstantiation. You can write that down, go home and tell somebody that you learned that word today, okay? transubstantiation this is the belief that the wine and the bread of the communion table become the actual blood and body of christ as we partake them the reason i want to address this is i really do believe this is an incorrect understanding of jesus intent in sharing this table when christ was in the upper room he said take drink take and drink this is my blood Well, I don't think the disciples thought that was really his blood. For one, he was sitting right there. And I don't think that they thought Jesus was doing a magic trick. 
I think they understood this for what it meant. Then he said, this is my body. They had no problem understanding what he was saying. They understood that what he was telling them is, these are symbols to help you remember me. To help you remember the fact that I came and I redeemed you. And that my death redeems you and causes you to move into new relationship with me. That's why I picked up the cup of redemption. I want to remind you of the importance of what's going to be happening here. And my death will redeem you. I want to remind you of my humanity. You've spent three years with me. Remember that I hurt as you hurt. I struggled as you struggled. I was tempted as you were tempted, yet without sin, the Bible says. They knew what he was talking about. They had no problem understanding that. You know, there are other uh, places in Scripture where Jesus refers to himself as something, but there's no... We certainly understand he wasn't being literal. He was giving pictures of who he was. Jesus said, I am the door. I don't think any of us think that he's a three foot by six foot piece of wood. Right? I'm the door. Jesus is not in the elements. That's not the point. Jesus didn't take these two elements, the bread and the cup, and say, this is me. This is actually my body and blood. Why didn't he say that? Because Christ isn't in the elements. He is in the believer. The Holy Spirit enters into the believer's life. And lives in each one of us. What happens in communion is that the believer is awakened to the reality of Christ again. In these elements. So Paul is saying, look people, when you come to the Lord's table, you're communing with Christ. You're actively involved in a a partaking of all that he is and all that he has done. You are fellowshipping and participating in his reality And then he refers to the history of Israel to get his point across. He says this in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. The altar here refers to God, to the worship of God. And when they came to those sacrifices, it was very common that they would partake of the parts of the burnt sacrifice. They gave some of the food to priests, some of it was burned up to God and to God as a sacrifice some went to other worshipers and then part of it was kept there was involvement in these sacrifices israel was involved in sacrificing and as they were they were involved with each other and they were involved with god paul is saying in that same way you have a deep involvement at this moment of sacrifice with God and with the body of Christ. You see, worship is identification. The idea of communion with whoever is being worshipped and with those worshipping with you. When you step into this place each week, you're identifying yourself with something. If you tell someone this week, yeah, I go to New Life. If they know anything about our church, they could identify, hopefully, the people, the kind of people you worship with, what this place is about. So if you're going to be like Israel in verse 18, communion with the altar for the Jews meant fellowship with God and everybody else that was present. Communion with Christ at the Lord's table for Christians means fellowship, deep, connective 
fellowship with Christ and everybody else at this table. But then Paul says, all right, now this is an example I've given you. Let me remind you about this idol thing again. You see, that's communion with Christ and with the body. But Paul says, here's the problem. The communion with the feast of an idol means fellowship with that idol and everybody else who is there too. And so Paul continues. In verse 19, what do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Pretty heavy stuff. As we learned last week, what had happened was the Corinthians were kind of going back to these temples. And though they didn't believe this anymore, they they were participating in their feasts. Because it was good food and they realized, you know, wasn't a problem with that. Well, Paul brings up, there are a few things about idols and idolatry that we need to realize. First, idolatry is inconsistent with the believer's life. Hopefully most of us figured that out last week. That we can't have a functional substitute savior and Christ. This is again Paul's distinction between what is permissible and what is beneficial. In my mind, Christ followers should not live in the land of the permissible. Where our decisions are made like this. Well, I, nothing wrong with that, I guess. So let's do that. There's a good reason to do something. There's nothing wrong with it. Wait a minute. Maybe we should start saying, well, what's right with this? What, how does this move me into deeper relationship with Christ? How does this move me forward in my walk with Jesus? Not, oh, well, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with it. Well, that's the land of the permissible. In verse 21, Paul says, you cannot do this. You can't drink of the cup of the lord and the cup of demons what doesn't mean they can't they literally cannot do it he means cannot in the sense of you should not be doing this paul's thought is this when you take the cup and when you take the bread you are communing with christ in a very real way in a very genuine way this is precisely why a christian shouldn't go to an idol feast paul says the idol feast means then that he is involved with the worshipers and the one being worshiped whether he likes it or not How can a Christian involve himself at the Lord's table and then turn around and involve himself in an idol feast when they both constitute communion? What was going on? Well, Corinthians were thinking, hey, nothing wrong with this. They got good food at that potluck. We'll go over there to their fish fry. And we'll go over there and it's no problem. The problem was that the the, the people that were worshiping there were worshiping this wasn't gathered in the fellowship hall this was part of their worship they would take the food that they believed would be as a worship to idols well i'm sitting off the side eating the same food in the same place that they're worshiping this way not a good thing see for us today this comes down to our right living we can't commune with and become one with our functional substitute saviors and still commune with Christ and other believers, it's just inconsistent. We can't say, yeah, I'm arm in arm with Christ followers, but I got this little thing over on the side. 
I got this little, you know, this thing I do to help me get through the day and it deals with this issue in my life, but I'm still one with Christ, inconsistent, Paul says. Then he goes a step further and says that idolatry is demonic. Paul says that he, the person who steps into the idol feast and participates becomes a communer with demons. And to Paul, this is ridiculous. This is unbelievable. This is why he says you should not drink. You can't, you can't be doing this. You can't be drinking of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of demons. See, Paul's asking a really basic question. Why should a Christian avoid the things of the world? Why should a Christian have no other saviors? Because a Christian can't commune with the demonic, Paul says, and turn around and then commune with Christ. Well, where's this demonic stuff coming in? And wait a minute, didn't Paul say earlier in this letter that there really wasn't anything wrong with this food? You see, in 8.4, if you remember, he said the idol's nothing, right? And in chapter 8, verse 8, he says that the food offered to idols is nothing. So what is Paul saying? Isn't he contradicting himself? And why is he going to this demonic thing? Well, Paul is really saying, I'm not saying that when you go in, when you go to commune with that idol, that you're really communing with another God. He still doesn't say that, does he? He said, this is not a God. It's not real. I'm not saying you're communing with another God. I'm not saying that you're really involved in the worship of another God. Why? Because that God isn't even real. I don't want you to be confused, Paul says. I don't want, I don't believe in other gods. That's not what I'm saying. But I do say, Paul's getting across, I do think real communion is existing here because, Paul would say, the things which the heathen sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to a god. It's not a god, but I think Paul believed that a demon would be trying to make people think that that god was real. And Paul says, I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. You see, underlining all false, re- underlying all false religions is the demonic. If you go to India or other countries that worship other gods, as we would define them, you have to realize there's a reason people do that, not just because they're told. And Paul, and I would agree with him, believe that the demonic would enter into these situations. And I believe, from what we've heard in our studies in our trips, we discover that the demonic gets involved and creates things that look godlike. And so you talk to people who say, well, there's been a miracle. Matter of fact, a lot of the gods in, in India that are created are created because there's been an event. There's been something that somebody said, well, the God did something here, so let's create, the, let's build up this little thing here and let's worship that. See, the demonic is involved. So if you go out and you worship in a false system and you sit around and are part of it, you're actually in a communion situation being identified with the worshipers and the worshiped one who Paul says is a demon. When you go out and you do what the rest of the world does, when you participate in the world's activities, you're communing or take the possibility of communing with demons. You see, Satan is the prince of this world. And because he rules this world by the use of demons, his demons move around and impersonate all the religious systems of this world. No matter what you get into, you're communing with them and you can't avoid it. It's a serious thing, Paul says. Now, over the weekend, I've had people come and say, okay, well, wait a minute, how far does this go? Does this mean, okay, I'm in this 
car club thing or I'm in this club over here and I realize that this is substitute, functioning substitute saviors for a lot of these people, these cars. And so do I want to get into that? Well, we could go all day in analyzing every possible situation. And I think it comes down to this. I think we know what it is we are placing in place of Christ. And I also would say that there's no, there's nothing in the passage to give us indication that the Corinthians were going into the temple as evangelists in trying to seek to reach people. They were going in just to participate in this because it was good food. They got stuck in the land of the permissible. But for them, it wasn't even beneficial. And Paul says, it's not even permissible that you do this. So I think we have to look inward and evaluate the things that we're involved in in a very deep way. You know, it's interesting, Psalm 96, 5, the Greek translation of that verse from the Old Testament reads this way, all the gods of the nations and all the gods of the heathen are demons. And this is unknowingly fellowshipping with demons, Paul says. And finally, Paul's argument continues in verse 22 where he says, idolatry is not only inconsistent, it's not only demonic, it is offensive to the Lord. He says this, do you provoke the the Lord to jealousy? Are you stronger than he? It's just offensive to the Lord. See, here's my thought. The only way that I would ever want to make God jealous and get him upset at me would be if I decided I was tougher than he was. Because if I'm going to make God jealous and upset, I better be ready for a fight. And I better be ready to win it. Now, what's the answer to that question? Not going to happen. Deuteronomy 32.21 says this, They have stirred me to jealousy for what is no God. They have provoked me with their idols. Okay, you want to stir God to jealousy? You better be stronger than he is because you ain't going to be able to handle him if you're not. He deals very strongly with idolatry. God judges idol worshipers. There's no escape. There never has been. It's a dangerous place to be. So Paul says, remember. Remember, you're a Christian. Don't worship idols. Don't give your life to functional substitute saviors. It is inconsistent. It is demonic. And it is offensive to the Lord. You're not going to win. Paul says the incentive ought to be that when you come together for this meal, that you remember the death and the life of your Savior. And that you remember your responsibility within the body to be one. And so I want us to consider these questions as we look at the Lord's table today. First question And we can only answer them for ourselves. Am I a true participant in the blood of Christ? Do I truly want to identify with and commune with the death of Christ? Am I willing to say what Paul said? That I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, of his death. Number two, am I a full participant in the body of Christ? 
Do I understand the godness that Jesus gave up for humanity? To take on flesh. Do I understand my place in his body, the church? Number three, is my life inconsistent with the depth of Christ's sacrifice? You see, it's not just a little cup and a piece of bread. It is the death and the life of our Savior. Number four, would my taking of the elements of the Lord's table today be offensive to the Lord? Would I be coming, holding on to my functional substitute saviors? Would I truly set them aside and look to the one Savior who died, who gave his life for us? 1 John 5, 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. As we come to the Lord's table today, that should be our commitment. No other Savior but Jesus. None of our functional substitute saviors have have ever given up a place in heaven and come and become one of us and died for us. This is the Savior we worship at this table.